Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Radicals in Conversation, a podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. This month we'll be looking at immigration in the UK, focusing on the hostile environment policy that's come to dominate the current government's language and legislation around immigration. We'll also be focusing more specifically on the widely criticised immigration detention system itself and the movement that exists trying to end it. I'm Chris Brown and I'm joined today by two very special guests who are going to lead the discussion. Gracie Bradley from Liberty and Luke Butterley from Right to Remain. So Gracie and Luke, thanks very much for agreeing to come on the show today. It's really great to have you both. Um, Perhaps we could start by you just telling us a little bit more about yourselves and the work that your respective organisations do. So I work at Liberty. I work in the policy team there. Uh, And Liberty is one of the UK's oldest human rights organisations. It was founded in 1934 and we do lots of work across lots of different spectrums to protect civil liberties and promote human rights. So you'll see us kind of meeting MPs to talk to them about bills that are going through Parliament and concerns that we have that those bills threaten human rights or could be improved to better protect human rights. You'll also see us doing public campaigning because we think that the voice of the public is really important and a really, you know, useful mechanism for change in bringing pressure to bear on politicians when they don't necessarily want to listen to us in those meetings. And we campaign across a broad spectrum of issues. So I do a lot of work on the hostile environment. My colleagues are leading a campaign to end indefinite immigration detention. But we're also very interested in policing, uh, mental health, the vast array of human rights concerns that you can imagine that we would have. Hi, I'm Luke. I'm here today from Right to Remain. Uh, Right to Remain is a human rights organisation that campaigns for migration justice in the UK. Uh, We work with communities, groups and organisations across the country, providing information, resources and training, basically to help people establish their right to remain in the UK, but also to um, challenge injustices in the migration and asylum system. So as well as providing that uh, information and resources, um, we deliver capacity building training and workshops, again, throughout the country. A lot of these are around our Right to Remain toolkit, which is one of the things we're better known for. And we also do um, communications and outreach work, which is kind of highlighting what's going on, but also championing groups who are uh, resisting community solidarity and things like that. And that's communications is uh, my brief there. Um, We've mentioned it very briefly, both me and Gracie. what is the hostile environment? Because that's, uh, I guess, not a term everyone will be aware of. Yeah, of course. So the hostile environment is a set of policies that were developed under the coalition government. I think the first time the hostile environment, the term was actually used, was in 2012 in an interview that Theresa May gave to The Telegraph. And essentially, these are a set of policies that are ostensibly about making life as difficult as possible for undocumented migrants. Uh, So people who don't have permission to be or remain in the UK. Now, the government says that the policy is only really concerned with creating a hostile environment for undocumented people. But what we know is that it actually creates a hostile environment for migrants of all different immigration statuses, black and minority ethnic people, people who seem visibly foreign. um, And ultimately, you know, almost all of us in society, because of the way these measures are quite oppressive, 
And to give you an example of the sort of breadth of areas of life that they span, there are, so the hostile environment has been enacted in healthcare. So it means that people are having to pay an awful lot of money for particular kinds of medical treatment. It means that people also have to pay a visa surcharge. It means that migrants' medical records are being shared with the Home Office um, so that the Home Office can get up-to-date addresses for them and essentially track them down so people now fear going to their doctor. It's also a policy that's been enacted in schools. So children now are being asked for their nationality and country of birth by their teachers, um, children and parents, I should say. That information was going to be handed over to the Home Office. Uh, Public outcry against Borders for Children um, managed to stop that from happening. But what was then discovered is that children's school records are also being handed over to the Home Office so that the Home Office can get up-to-date addresses on families it thinks shouldn't be in the country. We've seen hostile environment measures introduced in banks. So banks now have to refuse to open an account for a person who the Home Office says doesn't have the right to be here. And we're now going to see quarterly checks on 70 million bank accounts in the UK to try to assist the Home Office in finding people it believes shouldn't be here. So that's essentially all of us subjected to financial surveillance in the name of a hostile environment. We've seen students, foreign students in universities subject to quite punitive monitoring. We have seen victims of violence who are undocumented handed over to the police. I mean, When the coalition government got together what it called the Hostile Environment Working Group, it included ministers from essentially every single department. And one of the quotes that was given to the press was that every department would have its hands dipped in blood. Um, So really, the aim of this this set of policies is, is to turn everybody into a border guard and through that complicity make life absolutely unlivable. In effect, not just for undocumented people, but for anyone who ends up being asked for their papers because they look like they they might not belong here, however the asker perceives that to be. But again, it means all of us are being conditioned to show our IDs, show our passports, um, to sacrifice certain privacy, certain freedoms in the name of immigration control. And that's really worrying. Yeah, absolutely. How has it changed since Brexit? Because I imagine that must have had a big impact on the government's action on immigration. I mean, Luke, do you want to talk a bit about EU nationals? So there's there's two parts to, to that answer, I guess. One is that um, it hasn't changed per se. A lot of the very um, toxic immigration measures we've seen, like Gracie mentioned there, are much older than than the referendum, let alone its result. And a lot of, you know, the, the, the laws and so on that are implemented against um, people would have happened whether we stayed or we left the European Union. However, since well, since this the Conservative government came in first in 2010 under coalition and now as, um, well, more or less majority, there's definitely been a crackdown on the rights and freedoms of EU nationals living here. So in terms of detention, which I'll go on to in a minute, but in terms of uh, immigration detention, the number of EU nationals detained in the UK has skyrocketed since 2010. In 2009, it was about 200 people detained every year. This year, it's about 4,000. So it's gone up a lot. It's for a couple of reasons. One of the more insidious reasons is linked to um, what's called the exercise of your treaty rights. So while we have what's called freedom of movement, it's not um, an absolute freedom. If you're an EU national living here, you have to be 
either in work or a student or meeting various conditions. If you aren't, the government can arrest, detain and deport you. So up until late last year, the government was carrying out a, po- a policy of targeting and rounding up EU nationals who were rough sleeping, mostly in London, but also in um, other areas of the country, including Scotland, purely for the, the crime, as they say, of sleeping rough. And uh, th- this, this particular aspect of this policy has now been ruled illegal, but that was purely down to the relentless campaigning of a couple of groups, but quite a small um, grassroots group called uh, NELMA, which is the North East London Micron Action, who successfully raised the profile in the press and, you know, got a court case. But this is, I guess, this element of it is very linked to what Gracie was talking about in this kind of hostile environment. Hostile environment is often seen as the kind of privatization of immigration enforcement. So it's the schools, the hospitals and so on. And while in this um, policy it was immigration officers, it was also with the uh, collaboration of uh, local authorities, but most troubling, uh, homeless outreach charities. And so I mentioned there immigration detention, but um, while immigration detention does affect all our communities and a lot of people here, a lot of people don't actually know what it is. So it might be useful for me just to give a kind of uh, background to it. Immigration detention is is really a cornerstone of the modern, quite repressive immigration enforcement system we have here in the UK. And there's a vast network of it. There's around a dozen long and short-term holding centres across the country. Uh, there's some here in London, and there's Larne in the north of Ireland, up in Scotland, and so on. They're often near airports or other ports, and often you know very far away from from communities. And they're really black holes of legal rights, civil rights, uh, let alone human rights. There is uh, very little oversight at all. A judge doesn't need to, you know, say that you can be detained. It can just be a worker in a uh, in a government department. And because of this, uh, today around 30,000 people are locked up each year in immigration detention with around 3,000 at uh, any one time. And people can be locked up indefinitely and are locked up indefinitely. The UK is the only country in Europe to um, operate uh, immigration detention with no time limit uh, whatsoever. So while most people are detained um, for a few months, you can be detained for a year and several years. The the longest person detained, as far as I know, is currently detained and they've been there over five years. And so with, with, with a lack of a time limit, the effect on people's uh, mental and physical health is obviously um, quite severe. In 2017, there was 10 detainee deaths. It's the deadliest year on record, um, mostly due to people um, taking their own lives. You know, you'll you'll read some of the testimony of, of friends and families of people who were detained, went in with no mental health issues, and within a few months had uh, taken their own life. And the range of reasons why people are detained is, is broad, but some of the, the cases late last year were, again, people who were uh, arrested for the crime of sleeping rough. Who can be detained? Basically, anyone who's not British can be detained. In practice, what does that mean? Around 50% of people detained at any one time are people who have sought asylum in this country. It could also be people who have had a visa of some sort, 
but that has run out and they've been unable to renew it. And there is increasing financial and other barriers to renewing visas or getting visas extended. There's EU nationals, like I mentioned, um, and there's also ex-prisoners. We operate a, a policy of double punishment in that you are tried and sentenced for whatever crime and upon release then re-detained. And this can be people who um, have you know, moved to this country at a very young age, perhaps with their parents, for, again, the kind of financial and other legal barriers have not been able to obtain British citizenship. So have lived here most of their lives, have been involved in some crime, sentenced, and then deported back to a country which they basically have never known. Um, and it's often the first time people find out that they're not British. Basically, anyone can be detained. Um, it could, you know, if you're the victim of torture, if you're a trafficking victim, even children, while there was a large campaign to end child detention, which was largely successful, it still happens in practice. Last year, 48 children were in immigration detention. The year before, it was 137. And at any one time, around 80,000 people have to sign on, which basically means sign on at a home office, reporting centre or a police station. Again, it could be someone in the asylum system. And at any point in that process, you can be detained. So I guess it's a threat that hangs over a lot of people. Obviously, having yourself detained with no sense of how long you're going to be there for is uh, bad enough. But I guess in terms of the infrastructure, the government is actually using former prisons in a lot of cases. Um, where I'm from in Dorset, I think the Vern Prison on Portland for about three years. I think it's being turned back into a prison now, but it was turned into a, an immigration detention centre so, I mean, the infrastructure criminalizes the people that are actually in that system. And, and, and that is essentially it. People are detained not for any crime. Like I said, if you are convicted of a crime and sentenced, you will go into a, a mainstream prison. If you're in detention, your, your crime basically is that, you know, you don't have the right papers. And I think one thing that has been sort of really alarming um, as sort of hostile environment measures have bedded in has been the... I mean, it's bad enough that anybody is caught up in policies like this and treated in this way. I think it's fundamentally unjust. But there are also lots of people who do have the right to remain or could apply, would be eligible to apply for it, who are now being caught up in the hostile environment and are also being detained. So people might be familiar with a couple of stories that The Guardian ran very recently regarding Paulette Wilson and Anthony Bryan. And they are two people who I think are both from Jamaica um, who had arrived in the UK in the 1960s. So they've both been here 50 years or longer, you know, worked here all their lives, had their, had their kids and grandkids here. And they both found themselves in immigration detention. And that's because in the 1960s, 70s, everybody who'd come in prior to the 1971 Immigration Act was given the right to remain in the UK. But that doesn't mean that they were put in a Home Office database or given any papers to show that. But previously, you you know, it was easier to go about your business without having to show your ID all the time. Don't get me wrong, police officers were obviously still stopping people under sus laws um, and telling them to show their papers. But in terms of showing ID at the hospital or your employer checking your passport or your landlord now having to check your passport, those were things that didn't necessarily happen. 
But what is increasing is data sharing between different government departments. So now the Home Office might ask the Department for Work and Pensions whether they've got your address because they suspect you of being an overstayer. And so these two people, Paulette Wilson and Anthony Bryan, both ended up being, you know, flagged as being here without the right to be here. And they ended up in immigration detention, despite having lived here for absolutely ages. And one of the things that is really, really... Well, there are a couple of things that are really disquieting about this. But the first is that the Home Office knows that there are countless older uh, older people, often they're sort of West Indian or Indian, Pakistani, etc., people who came in the 60s and 70s. They know there are lots of older people who may not be able to prove their right to remain, but who have lived here for decades, who are now increasingly likely to get caught up in this system, which I think is really worrying. But second, so a few years ago, people might recall that Capita was contracted by the Home Office. I think the headline from the Daily Telegraph was that bounty hunters had been contracted to track down illegal immigrants. The Home Office had given a load of data to the outsourcing firm Capita and got them to text people it believed had no right to be in the country, essentially saying, you have no right to be in the UK, you should be making preparations to leave. Which is bad enough in itself, it's a totally inappropriate way to communicate with people. But the data was incredibly poor. And so lots of people who received texts actually had the right to remain. Um, and they obviously, you know, kicked up a massive fuss and the Home Office was duly embarrassed, although I don't think it was necessarily chagrined. But the point the point is, is that now we've moved on from just getting a threatening text. We're now at the point where the Home Office and other government departments share so much information that if you lose your status or if you come up in their systems as not having it, your employer will be notified. Your landlord could be notified. If you seek treatment at a hospital that is chargeable, they will be told about your overseas visitor status. Um, So we're seeing an increasing ability to lock people out of entire systems of support, potentially on the basis of faulty data. But even if the data is correct, the human consequences are potentially devastating And we have to remember that we're functioning in a context in which legal aid has been hugely cut. Um, I mean, if you want to, if you need legal aid to make an immigration claim that isn't asylum or human rights based, you're not going to get it. It simply isn't possible. And the kind of citizenship fees have skyrocketed, citizenship and visa fees. So it now costs, I think, £973 to register a child for British citizenship and 60% of that fee is profit to the Home Office. And you add in on top of that that the rules change incredibly quickly and what you find is a system that is structurally unjust where the dice are stacked against people who, of course, are primarily not white and not rich. You know, So you've got cuts to legal aid, massive fees and poor decision-making. And when you eventually fall foul of that system, you have hostile environment measures and ultimately immigration detention and removal awaiting you. It's a really disquieting thing, and I think it's something that should alarm all of us who care about the kind of society that we live in. And I I, I would just like to to, to echo that point about the difficulty in regularising your status here. And while that's particularly true, while someone's in detention, that is one of the main... One of the many issues with detention that if you are detained, the opportunities you have then to, you know, get your status sorted, get your claim sorted, obviously diminish drastically. Um, For example, if you are in Belfast and you're detained or anywhere in the north of Ireland, you will be moved to another of these centres in Scotland, for example. You can't access your lawyer there if you're lucky enough to have one. And uh, 
there's often very little data, but around um, asylum claims, you see for appeals, data came out recently about appeals, and you see it around the country, and when it's in a detention center, the person's chance of appeal is around half of what it would be outside of one, and it's because of those issues of access, which are, again, not just for people in detention. As Gracie said, they're, they're everywhere around the access to it. And I think, I think it is an important point. Often in campaigning, you meet people who say, well, you know, if you wanted to, you could just get your, get your status sorted and you wouldn't have to deal with all these problems. But this is, has never been the case here. And increasingly, over the past seven odd years, it's become increasingly impossible for people. I feel like we've, we've been quite doom and gloom thus far. Um, and one point that I wanted to make is that while I sort of located the beginning of hostile environment rhetoric with the coalition government and Theresa May saying it in 2012, I think what is really important to recognise is that, of course, that governments of all parties have, for decades, posed an incredibly significant threat to the rights of migrants, governments and indeed broad swathes of society at large at times. But at the same time, for as long as that kind of anti-migrant sentiment and lawmaking has existed, there has been, you know, a really diverse and pluralistic and principled movement to oppose that and to say, well, actually, no, regardless of your immigration status, there are some rights that everybody should have and there are some ways in which everybody should be treated. And I think that now, as we see the real overreach of a lot of these measures into professions that previously, or areas of life that previously did not have to consider them, like schools or like healthcare, there's a real opportunity actually for everyone in society to understand that they have been touched by this system and to say that actually they, they reject it and they don't think that anybody should be treated in this way just because of where they were born. And I think there are an awful lot, in addition to kind of the larger established NGOs um, who are doing some brilliant campaigning, there are lots of small grassroots groups entirely unfunded that are mobilising up and down the country. And I think they're setting a really brilliant example in actually how much you how much you can successfully demand. If we look at Docs Not Cops, that is just fighting for healthcare, for free healthcare for everybody. If we look at Against Borders for Children, which, you know, I've done a lot of campaigning with, just saying every child should be able to go to school. It's obviously alarming that we're in a place where these demands are having to be made. But at the same time, I think there is absolutely scope for, you know, this very broad movement of people to win. And I think that we mustn't forget that you know, we stand on the shoulders of all of the people who have been fighting these battles before us. It's not something that's unique to 2010 onwards, and we should take heart from that. And precisely because of that, you know, expansion of it in, into the homes and schools and so on that, that you talked about, part of the reason why there has been this kind of much wider resistance now in this current period um, than, than, ha than has been for a while is because of how it's linked to other government assaults and other resistance to it. So obviously things like docs, not cops, around, you know, the, the right to universal uh, healthcare is linked to an, an assault on the NHS in, in total. Similarly with the uh, rough sleepers, um, like I was talking about, there's obviously been a, an assault on, on homeless services, on, on, on women's uh, refuges and, and, and social housing and the rest of it. And mental health too. And mental health, exactly, which is, which is a really big area. 
So again, these things are, are, are related and they just allow for many more opportunities for people, for groups and so on to come together. Because one of the ways, I guess, governments or society, however you want to say it, has been successful has been siloing migration issues, migration assaults. And while they've always affected the whole community, they've managed successfully to, to kind of paint it in a way that it only affects those few. And even if it's something you, you don't agree with, it's not going to affect you and therefore it's not really a fight and so on and so forth. But that is, is kind of, there's a potential for that to unravel a bit in, in this current moment. And, and in terms of, I guess, uh, resistance with immigration detention, again, it's, it's so very true. Since, since the beginning of immigration detention in the UK, there has been resistance to it. If you look at the timeline, it's neck on neck. You know, as soon as this modern period of, of immigration detention started, in the early 1990s, there's always been, you know, the detention of migrants. But in this current period, there's been resistance to it. The predecessor of, of, of Right to Remain um, and many other groups that are, are still around today, but also uh, visitors groups. Visitors groups is a great way for people to get involved in the fight to end immigration detention, because as immigration detention centers are everywhere, they are also everywhere. It's a relatively easy thing to get in, involved with. Yeah, so it's a it's a good uh, uh, jumping off point on that. But with all these, with all this resistance, obviously the kind of the pioneers of it have been people detained themselves, either current or ex detainees. You know, there's been protests, rooftop protests, hunger strikes. Um, there's there's quite a kind of vivid history of resistance that we often don't quite know about. Again, because of this kind of siloing that the government has uh, successfully been able to do. But some of it has been uh, successful. Like I mentioned, while children are still detained, before 2010, it was much, much more widespread. And uh, due to a kind of coalition of, of groups, this policy has more or less ended. It will never end while there is immigration detention, but it's it's greatly reduced. And a lot of focus more recently is on the lack of a time limit. There's various campaigns, a kind of major one around 2014 is this time for a time limit because the time limit, the lack of a time limit is seen as one of the most hazardous aspects of detention. And because people see it in a way of not get a time limit and then detention is fine, but you know, using that to kind of build momentum for uh, for broader change. You mentioned before, obviously, a lot of the great work that's being done is coming from people who've been in that system, immigration detention system. Right to Remain, obviously, there you've got a campaign on the moment. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? So these walls must fall um, comes on the back of, of all that kind of movement building. I mentioned the embers of it have been going on for a while. It kind of really got uh, started in 2016. And it's it's basically a, a growing network of groups, organizations, communities, people from all sorts of backgrounds, but with a, you know, a determination to end the injustice of immigration detention. And people are pushing the campaign through the communities that already exist, groups, organizations, churches, their trade union, their school, and so on. And while uh, people at risk of detention play a vital part of the, the campaign, another vital part is people who are not at risk of detention for for a, a lot of reasons. But kind of like I mentioned, uh, it, it is something that affects us all, uh, even if you're not at risk of, of being detained, to have this great injustice going on in, in our communities, even if there's not a detention center in your city, people are still detained 
from your city. And therefore, their, uh, you know, their participation in it is vital, like with the other stuff, like with Docs on Cops and so on. you got to mainstream the, the issue. So a lot of the work recently has been going on in the north of England. And last year, there was uh, a number of successes just for this campaign through basically getting a lot of trade unions on board, which, of course, is, is a really vital thing to be doing. Same with uh, MEPs, uh, MPs, local councillors and so on. The uh, shadow immigration minister, Afsal Khan, has supported the campaign. Last November, the Manchester City Council passed a motion to endorse the campaign and to call for the end of immigration detention. But that makes it the first council in the UK to have done so. And, and since then, it's been great to see a lot of people come out and say, that's great, I want my council to do that, in my borough, in my city, or whatever, which is a really important part of campaigning always is to make the thing contagious. People see, look what they're doing there. We can do it. We can do it here. Grace, obviously, Liberty is involved in this kind of side of things as well. Yeah, Liberty has just launched a campaign called End Indefinite Detention. And it's really Liberty adding its voice to the movement, calling for a time limit on immigration detention as a step towards an end to immigration detention, which is the change that Liberty ultimately wants to see. So you'll see more from us on this in the coming months. There is a petition on our website that would be brilliant if people could sign. But more broadly and beyond our immigration detention campaigning, there's one issue that I haven't brought up yet, but that is really, really pressing, which is the Data Protection Bill. I now know far more about data protection than I possibly could ever have cared to know. Um, But this is a bill that's been through the House of Lords and is about to go through the House of Commons. And it contains an exemption to people's data protection rights on immigration control grounds. In the 1980s, when the Data Protection Act, what became the Data Protection Act 1984, was going through, the government tried to include a similar exemption, and that was roundly uh, condemned by the House of Lords as racist and discriminatory, and it was removed from the bill. Um, Times have changed, so this one has made it through our House of Lords, but... Nevertheless, it will be in the Commons, I expect, as people are listening to this. And we would really strongly urge people to go on our website and use our Rights Your MP template to tell your MP that it's imperative that this exemption is removed from the bill. What it would basically do is it would make it much easier for the government to secretly obtain data on any of us if it thought it would be useful or necessary for immigration control purposes. So we know that information is already being shared, children's school records, patients' confidential medical records, and that currently only targets undocumented people. And in itself, that is terrible. But what this exemption would do is it would make it easier for that kind of secret data sharing to happen, regardless of a person's immigration status. One of the things that it might do also is prevent people from getting access to their own information held by the Home Office. And that's something that everybody needs if they're making an immigration claim, if they've made one previously. So it's bread and butter work of solicitors to make what's called a subject access request to the Home Office when they're starting a new claim for someone, whether that's an asylum claim or a family rights claim or whatever. And if people can't get hold of their own files from the Home Office, this is going to be a massive impediment to people actually being able to access justice. Um, So on on those grounds, on the grounds that it is going to shatter trust in public services if the Home Office is hoovering up even more data, on the grounds that it's going to impede access to justice, um, we would really 
hope that people can support us um, in asking for that egregious clause to be removed from the data protection bill. And, you know, Gracie was talking there about how people won't be able to access their own data. And I know from from other kind of uh, campaigning around housing, campaigning around mental health, being able to access your data is often very vital to get your own situation sorted. And so, you know, to remove that is obviously quite worrying. And as always with anti-immigration laws and anti-terror laws and the rest of it, what is allowed there can can spread to other areas. And I guess it kind of ties into what kind of society we want to live in. So you might say, well, I'm not undocumented and I'm British national, I'm never going to be affected and so on and so forth. But it is about like what kind of world, what kind of country you want to have, you want to call home and, and, and the rest of it. And that ties in then again to like what are the alternatives to immigration detention, for example, when we're talking about that. There is a current alternative being proposed in, in a sense by the government and they have said as much is the hostile environment is to make the country so terrible to deny basic rights uh, that people need to live so that in, in their in their imagined people just leave. Again, this is this has never been the case. The other alternative is a broader change of society. Imagining a world where we don't have that is completely possible. And it's not just about demanding that we close detention centers. It's you know it's demanding that we have a society where people can live lives of security, opportunity and so on. I apologise because I can't remember all of the really brilliant grassroots groups that are doing great work, but I wanted to give a shout out to SOAS Detainee Support um, for their tireless work visiting people held in immigration detention and fighting for an end to immigration detention. And if people are based in London, you don't have to have anything to do with SOAS and you want to start visiting people in immigration detention or support the group in another way, then that is a really excellent place to start. Yeah, absolutely. The, you know, the kind of groups that we have around the country are vital. And, you know, it's more important for, you know, the people to, to, to have that power than for us to invest all our time and energy into changing the minds of, of one political party. Like, that's how the These Walls Must Fall approach is. It's like, make it a, a community issue, make it an issue that... The, the people care about. So if you change MP or if you change government, you don't lose everything you've you've just gained. Mm, absolutely. And can people find details of how to get involved in their local areas on your respective websites? Um, yeah, there's lots of information about Liberty's End Indefinite Detention campaign on our website and you will just by Googling be able to find information about lots of the groups that I've already mentioned. But one thing that I should also reiterate is that this is not an area in which people have to follow in the footsteps of what other groups are doing. I think all all of the all of the people who are involved in these struggles are subject to capacity, really willing to talk to people about what has gone well, what's gone less well, what what we would do differently in the future. But I also think the biggest change is the change that people make themselves, and you know you don't have to follow anybody's lead. I think you you just have to care about it and think about what you want to do about it, and people will support you to do that. And you can find out about these walls must fall at uh, detention.org.uk. We're also on uh, Facebook and Twitter and all uh, social media. We've got you know information there about groups you can get involved with, visitor groups, like I mentioned, there are some in every area. There's things that you can do in your community. You make it an issue in your school, in your, in your trade union, and so on. 
And there's also at our Right to Remain website, we produce a toolkit, which I mentioned at the beginning of the show. And there's a lot of information there if you yourself are at risk of detention around things you can um, do, plans you can, can make with a friend or so on, so that if you are detained, you're best prepared for it. And I would just like to uh, shout out as well that on Monday the 12th of March, we'll start the trial of the Stansted group of people who attempted to block or did successfully block um, a charter flight. Charter flights are where the state deports en masse people to a country such as uh, Ghana or, or Nigeria. The people are up in court there on Monday the 12th of March. They are charged with terrorism offences. If found guilty, they face long sentences and they could really use uh, your support. Again, on Facebook and Twitter, um, they're called End Deportations. Um, you can find information about them, ways you can support. On Facebook, there's information for people who want to go up to, to support them outside of the um, the trial and, and so on. And just, yeah, they're doing really... Uh, important work, important work for all of us. So anyway, you can give them your support. They'll appreciate it. Brilliant. Thanks, Luke. So I'd like to say a very big thank you to both Gracie and Luke for agreeing to come on the show today. I think it's been a really interesting discussion and clearly there's lots of ways that people get get involved wherever they are based in the country. You've been listening to Radicals in Conversation. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next month. <laughs>